Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. Is it an extra long shorts? No, Mars. Is the shoes it, right? Nah. Is it the short socks? No, Mars. Money's gotta be the shoes. Shoes, shoes, shoes. shoes. You sure it's not the shoes? I'm sure, Mars. What about the shoes? No, Mars. Money's gotta be the shoes. Conversations about collaboration, episode 57, first one of 2022, baby. Noah Pusey joins me. He is president and CEO of Ripple Analytics, a company that is redefining performance evaluations and employee surveys. We talk about curiosity, cooperation, performance reviews, and yes, Air Jordan, let's light this candle. Noah, where does this pod find you? I am just outside of Boston, Medfield, Massachusetts, about 35 minutes from my old stomping grounds at Boston College. BC, I actually interviewed there when I was thinking of becoming a college professor in 2016, and my um, primary contact wanted me to get the gig, but I think he got overruled because I didn't have the PhD credentials, but beautiful campus. Yeah, I loved it. Um, my, my going there and graduating in 1993 has had tremendous up value um, to my degrees worth in 2021. Uh, when I applied, it was a lot easier to get into, but I uh, love being in Boston. Boston's a great town, um, born and raised in Vermont. So I've got New England roots, uh, yeah. but yeah, it's a, it's a great school. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about what Ripple does. I'm in an elevator. I jump in. What do you tell me? What I ask you is, have you ever gone through the annual review? And if you're over 35, you nod. And I say, well, did you like it? And if you're over 35, you shake your head vehemently, maybe not vehemently, but certainly you're shaking your head. And I say, well, why do you, do you continue to do it at your current organization? And if it's a nod, I go, why? And there's generally a, because we've always done it. And, you know, I mean, that's ripple replaces or largely supplements the process of gathering information on your, on your people. And we drive feedback, we drive engagement and we do it throughout the year. We don't do it once a year. Um, as I shared with you earlier, I used to manage a firm in the city when I was an actively practicing attorney. And we did these tortured 15, 20-minute discussions every mid-December. And for what value? I mean, we have the science that shows it's a damaging event. It's not even, it's not even a break-even event. You're actually damaging the culture of your organization if you go through this archaic exercise of trying to sum up 12 months worth of activity in a 15, 20-minute discussion. Yeah, I've often said when it comes to performance reviews, and feel free to chime in here, that there's enough data on every person to justify, within reason, a positive eval, a neutral eval, or a negative one. And to me, it seems like, I remember taking a labor law course at Cornell a million years ago. One of the things the professor said to me really struck home. Basically, the judge knows how he or she is going to rule. And that judge is going to accentuate the cases that support his or her viewpoint and vice versa. I feel like it's similar with performance reviews and without speaking too much out of school with regard to some of my previous employers, I felt like they either liked me or they didn't. And I got that vibe and the performance review reflect that as opposed to some quote unquote objective discovery of my true value or contribution. Uh, you're nodding your head. I'll shut up. 
Yeah. Um, so you you hit on a lot of different points as to why we justified um, founding Ripple in the first place back in October 2014. We, you know, we both, my my co-founder Derek Hedges and I had been in management and leadership positions, and we had experienced firsthand the largely unintentional biases that occur. And, you know, if our kids play on the same soccer team, if we like to ski, if we, you know, all of these things that have absolutely nothing to do with whether you're a great employee, um, those impacted my reviews of those people. Uh, and the easiest of, of um, facts is, the, is, the, is the, at the heart of why we did Ripple. The, subjective, the subjectivity of a once a year discussion, your human brain only remembers things accurately for six to eight weeks. So if I'm reviewing you in December and you crushed October and November, guess what? You're getting a good review. And if you crushed January through June and you kind of, you know, you had a bit of a difficult time in October and, and November, then I see you as a slacker and a, and a person that has to work harder. And that's just, it's just not fair. So our model is monthly feedback so that you constantly get information that as a manager, you can act on. And as an employee, you can expect certain activities to occur. And if you're, you know, acting in a consistent uh, manner that warrants a discussion with your manager, then that manager should have that discussion, not wait every 12 months to just kind of throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. And you go further than just saying you get information every month. Talk to me a little bit about the five C's. What are they and how did you come up with them? Yeah. So we worked with an IO psychologist, Dr. Frank Shipper, and um, we basically wanted to measure the science uh, and the psychological health of the workplace. So the five C's that we created are based on the big five personality traits which had been um, recognized since the late 40s uh, by Iowa psychologists as the key personality traits um, involving human interaction. And that's human interaction. It's not workplace interaction. It's how you act when you're on vacation, uh, how you act on the weekends, how you act on a, at a barbecue, and how you act with your coworkers. So the five C's we developed um, based off the big five are curiosity, conscientiousness, commitment, cooperation, and consistency. And they mirror the big five personality traits. And what we're trying to do, what we've done with some of the organizations using Ripple is show that it's okay to have some weaknesses in terms of your abilities to interact with your coworkers, but stress the success, you know, um, stress, stress the strengths of your people and put them in positions where those strengths are celebrated. And don't put them in a position where their weaknesses are celebrated because what's going to happen with those people? One, they're probably not going to be as productive or efficient in that task. And two, they're going to resent if they know, my if my manager knows I'm not naturally conscientious, for example, and he or she is constantly putting me in positions that stress organization and, you know, how anal retentive I am and, and how structured I am. Well, I know that that person knows I'm not naturally conscientious. So why are you putting me in positions where I can only hope to get by, let alone um, succeed or, or fail? Noah, when you talk about the five C's, it occurs to me that there is the potential for conflict, something that I'm sure you've thought about before. In other words, I can be a really curious guy and that curiosity might piss other people off. I can think of highly rigid environments like, oh, I don't know, higher education, in which yeah. case some places have a very definitive way of doing things. And if I'm curious, I go, well, hey, have you thought about this? Or what if we tried that? And go, dude, stop being so curious. 
What's interesting when um, we look at the data for uh, existing Ripple users and new Ripple users is the fact that a lot of managers and leadership can't even um, attach, um, what's the word, descriptions to the job roles that they're looking at data about. So is Phil, should Phil be curious in his role in accounting? Probably not, <laughs> right? Yeah. I don't want my accounting department to be thinking out of the box and to be creative. And well, clearly I wouldn't have been role. successful at Enron. Right, exactly. exactly. However, if Phil is an up-and-comer in my marketing department and I want to look at his levels of curiosity, that's a totally different exercise because I need certain levels of curiosity. And I need, you know, Ripple gathers data from your colleagues, but you also complete a self-survey. And what we do is we compare those two data sets to arrive at how self-aware you are in any of those five personality traits. So so it's, it's critical to job function uh, depending on the function you're performing within an organization. You read my mind because I was taking notes as you were speaking. And it occurs to me that if I did hire three curious accountants in a row and they all mm-hmm. didn't work out, then maybe I might want to change my hiring practices or my pools or move someone who is more curious into marketing, if that makes sense. And the person's a good performer, but is just too willing to go different places where we just say, dude, it's debits and credits. Well, yeah. I mean, what's interesting is when we were uh, writing the code for Ripple, we had the developers who are, you know, by design, largely introverted. And commitment is our way of um, uh, gathering uh, data on personality traits involving extroversion, you know, who makes good salespeople, uh, how social colloquially are you. And my uh, CTO at the time, Bob Gatewood, was like, you know, I think engineers, I think coders are going to be dinged down when it comes to levels of commitment. And what I shared with Bob, which I thought applies today as much as it did back in 2014 and 15, is if I've got to go into a sales, a business development meeting or a sales meeting, and I'm meeting with Phil and his team, and I need to bring a development, a guy, a guy from our development team, a coder. And I see that Bob has numbers that are much higher than Sean and much, much higher than Max, our two other developers at the time. Well, I'm going to bring Bob. He might not have crazy numbers, but he's at least the most social of those three guys. And so I'm getting the best of what I have. And so you can use the data to drive those types of decisions, which, you know, is more objective than just saying, you know, I think Sean will do better in front of a group. I can actually look at data and say, you know what, Bob's actually the person that that should be in front of um, this team. And, And that's what we that's what we do. And that's what we ask and not expect, but certainly promote within our users to sort of, you know, step back because it is a totally different way of looking at the process of assessment, right? Because you're no longer saying Phil was supposed to sell 2 million widgets and you sold 3 million. So Phil's a great salesperson. Well, Phil may have also walked over his mom to make those sales and he is loathed within the sales team. That's fine. Because as an owner of a company, I want Phil to sell 3 million widgets, right? right? But if I can see that he doesn't get along, his cooperation levels are low, his consistency levels are low, put him on an island. You have, have Phil, what do you need from a resources perspective, Phil? You're, guess what? You're working from home because you're not a very positive influence on the team. And use that data to make those decisions. And then when Phil goes, well, I like coming into the office, Phil, let's look at your dashboard and let's talk about raw data. 
It's not right. nothing personal, Phil. It's nothing personal. You're you're killing it when it comes to sales. Good job. But the five, six, seven other people that you work with, mm, they're not loving it so much. So we're gonna right. we're gonna pivot. We're gonna see what happens, and we can re, we can revisit it in six months, nine months, three months, whatever the data, whenever the data suggests that you should revisit it. Right. So say what you will about the traditional performance review. It wasn't maybe a lot of transparency, but that I would argue could potentially be a good thing. Let me explain. So when I was working as a college professor at Arizona State, the school heavily emphasized student evaluations, mm-hmm. right? Because in a way, we don't want the students to hate you because they could fail, not pay money, drop out, go someplace else. I understand that. But I always looked at students as products, not customers or customers 10 years down the road. So you should look back and say, I'm glad that Professor Simon was a hard ass because if I don't do my work in the real world, I can't just complain to my mom or to the department chair or whatever. Right. So I came across something called Goodhart's Law. Have you ever heard of it? No. It's fascinating. So basically, once people know how they'll be evaluated, they'll change their behaviors to maximize the evaluation. So the classic example is, and I only learned this when I started teaching at ASU and said, this, this is strange. If you say, um, you know, Noah, I'm going to evaluate you on the number of nails that you produce. You're going to make tons of tiny nails that are smaller than thumbtacks. They don't work. Oh, so no, 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 no. It's the size of the nail. Okay, fine. You're going to build a nail the size of a freaking SUV, right? Which uh, there's no way I can hammer it. Um, just wondering if that's something that you sort of factored in while building the product, because it sounded like you started with a green screen and a lot of research and you could have built whatever the hell you wanted. Yeah, so 100% true. Uh, we worked on frequency. I mean, we had uh, pilots with weekly frequency surveys, and they hated it after five, six weeks because they get survey fatigue. We have, we have customization. Um, we have commentary that we've built over time, so you can actually answer a question. For example, I trust Phil. I can answer that five always, and then I can give some color on that response. Um, the Ripple platform is completely anonymous. Again, we did research. You can find compelling arguments for transparency versus anonymity. Um, we went with the aforementioned Frank Shipper's opinion that uh, when you evaluate the total experience, there is an there's more authenticity and more genuine uh, feedback when you don't have the fear of backlash. And that's that's the anonymity. But again, I mean, we run into situations where I always use the example, Hank from uh, Dallas, that in his comments says, Phil, y'all got to, you know, draw more focus on your people in your meetings. Well, Hank's the only person from Texas. So when he puts y'all in that comment, <laughs> guess what? The anonymity component's completely compromised. Um, but yeah, I mean, any kind of survey analytics tool and data analytics um, platform, you know, the thing that keeps me awake is is survey fatigue and participation levels. Because if you have a company with 100 people and 45 people are filling out the surveys, that data is skewed. It might be skewed good, it might be skewed bad, but I know that there's 55 people that haven't participated in the experience. So, you know, to take action based on 45% involvement, you know, we really want to drive up participation. And that's why it's a top-down exercise. You know, we, we tell executives all the time, you need, you need to participate so that your people see that you're participating and it's important enough for you to do that. Oh, couldn't agree more. I mean, I would guarantee you that it's funny you mentioned the 45% number that wasn't uncommon as a college professor for my students. And I'll bet you a Coke that the distribution was bimodal. Either Professor Simon is awesome or Professor Simon is a prick. 
Yep. Um, you know, it's the same thing with Yelp reviews, right? Or book reviews, right? I mean, how many, there are some, right? If you're going to take the time to review a restaurant on Yelp, though, it was probably because it was an awesome experience or a really bad one. Do you really spend the time if it's just a three-star review? Yep. That, and that's and that's the survey fatigue concern. And that's why we've worked to get this model in a place that drives participation. Your teams um, shouldn't be more than seven people. Um, again, frequency is monthly. That's our sweet spot. Uh, we've had organizations switch to quarterly after a certain number of, uh, of data points are collected. Um, we've had companies go back to monthly after going to quarterly because they want to get information and they want to get feedback. Yeah. Uh, gamification is a huge concern of any survey tool. Um, you know, sitting around the water cooler, which isn't as common an issue over the last 20 months, but certainly, you know, having your fellow teammates give you fives because your annual compensation discussion is coming up and you want, um, your ripple numbers to reflect higher numbers. But we're working on, um, technology that, uh, identifies outliers. So if I'm constantly giving you threes and fours, and then I start giving you ones because we're both up for the same promotion, then we're, we're hopefully in the next six months going to have an email automated system that sends me an email saying, you know, you've given Phil threes and fours and a bunch of fives over the last two and a half years. Why are you now giving him ones? Can you, can you help us? identify right. if there's an issue with Phil or if in fact it's because we're both up for the same promotion. Oh, there's always an issue with me, but that's a different discussion. <laughs> and it, yeah, I mean, it, it's fascinating to me to think about the the layers of this because, and I know um, Netflix was in the news not too long ago with what happened with Dave Chappelle and employees took to Slack to start inventing. And it, some people demonize Slack. Oh, this is exactly why we shouldn't use this type of tool. So you think that if you got rid of Slack, employees would be any less pissed off. They'd fire up Discord. They use WhatsApp, whatever. Yeah. Right. I mean, I would argue that whether it's Slack or whether or Microsoft Teams, some of the hubs that I write about in the book or a more frequent survey tool like Ripple, you've got the issue. You're shining a light on it faster. And just like going to the doctor, isn't it better to know now as opposed to five years from now that you've got a heart issue? Yeah, I, it's the proactivity. It's the, the proactive nature of business in 2021. I, I, I shudder when I hear, well, we apply the traditional approach to talent assessment. I'm like, well, what, is, what does that mean? I mean, are you talking about something that's 30 years old, 50 years old? You know, the annual review was born out of um, all of the GIs coming back from World War II. Huh. And they wanted they wanted their annual meeting with their commander to talk about what had happened over the last 12 months. If I would argue if you're if you're basing anything you do on a business front in 2021 on something that was created out of World War II in 1945, you're probably due for an upgrade when it comes to leadership um, and ownership identifying key issues. I mean, we we have more and more focused our energy on millennial and Gen Z expectations. That generational workforce, they don't they don't want feedback, they expect it. Mm. So if you know as an organizational leader that 66%, by the way, millennials and Gen Zers comprise 66% of the domestic workforce. So if I know as a 50-year-old executive that 66% of my people expect feedback and I'm not doing something to satisfy that expectation. I'm missing, I'm missing the boat and, and needlessly. So it's not 12%. It's not 18%. It's not 41%. It's 66% expect this um, to occur and you need to do it. I mean, American companies lose $350 billion a year on disengagement. I mean, that number, I mean, you know, I've always asked what's the ROI of ripple. I'm like, well, drive engagement. 
because disengagement is killing a lot of companies. Yeah, I'd heard that before the pandemic, something like 60% of U.S. workers were disengaged. If it is lower than that by now, I would be astonished. So it's 36% are engaged. Um, another 36% are disengaged. And then like 15% is are, are actively disengaged, right. meaning they are affirmatively uh, choosing not to be dis, not not to be engaged. Right. Which it's, it's not a difference. Shocking. Right. I mean, it's 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 concerning. And then the turnover. I mean, you know, what we want to do is we want to build retention, not not to save on onboarding costs. We want to build retention because retention is indicative of a culture. And we want people to come to work because they want to succeed and they want their coworkers to succeed. And that's our definition of, of culture. How many of your people actually want their coworkers to succeed in what they're doing? And if you have the majority of your people looking out uh, for their coworkers, chances are you have pretty strong culture. Yeah, I want to go back for a minute to a point that you made about older cultures. And I think it was three months ago, maybe, that uh, was the S&P 500 delisted GE. And if you had told me 15 years ago that that was possible, I would have said, you're crazy, right? Yeah. Because, you know, Jack Welch, arguably, you know, pre-Bezos, maybe Steve Jobs was held up as the iconic American yep. CEO. And I was reading an article from Chris Mims, who was also on my pod about the decline of these industrial conglomerates. And we don't necessarily look at Welch through that lens anymore. Um, especially when it comes to manipulating earnings and some of the other stuff, and particularly when it comes to performance review, you know, 10% up or out. Um, I'm wondering how the technology is playing a role because you could argue that you know, the pre-Amazon, Google, Netflix, Microsoft, Apple world, in person, less about tech. And, and here we are now, even if there weren't a pandemic, we've got more tech than ever. And now we're relying upon it, you know, given the state of, of the virus and variants um, has, the approach that Ripple changed at all based upon the uh, work from home status, or was that sort of baked in all along? Yeah. So we're huge on um, statistics, right? So I couldn't last, tell. Yeah. 20, the last 20 months, 83% of American non-manufacturing workers were at least, if not more productive. So I worked for a guy, a baby boomer years ago, and we had the technology to work remotely and we're in the Northeast. So there'd be storms, you know, you might knock us out. The commute into the city was an hour and a half each way. And you got 10 inches of snow. Even if you got there at 1130, you had to leave at three because the trains get. And, and the, the nonsense of that, of the, of the refusal to use technology so that if I'm doing a three hour commute in the snow, Noah, stay home, get on your computer at 830. Right. Work till five. I mean, if I have, if I'm pitching Ripple to a prospect and that person happens to be a mid to late sixties executive and they're asking why they should implement technological solutions to a pain point that they readily identify as the annual review, I, I want to talk to somebody else. Good stuff, Noah. What book are you currently reading? Uh, Phil Knight's Shoe Dog. How is have that? You read it? I've not. No, it's, I, I don't it, trust any book by anyone named Phil. Well, there you go. That's a, that's probably a good rule. Um, you know, it's it's any successful uh, after the fact entrepreneurial, you know, jaunt. Uh, I mean, of course, he had problems along the way. Of course, right. of course, he had hiccups. But the overwhelming umbrella is you're now worth sixty seven billion dollars. So, you know, it worked right. out. Um, but as an entrepreneur, you know, it's kind of nice to know that that he went through a lot of the stuff that a lot of uh, myself and my, my peers go through in terms of 
recognizing that everybody isn't an honest person in business and surrounding yourself with people that you trust and basically being okay with the fact that some people are going to disappoint you. Um, one of our first um, LOIs to use Ripple was, was a 5,000 employee company back in 2015. What's an LOI? Uh, letter of intent. Oh, okay. Letter of intent to use Ripple um, for two years. And we got a call on Christmas Eve, 2014, that they had some turnover in their uh, leadership in their HR team and we were out. So we had raised money based on, you know, mm-hmm. the, the 5,000 users, 2,500, uh, 25,000 in monthly recurring revenue. And, you know, that, that was a blow, but we, we pivoted and we realized that we probably should go after smaller companies initially so that we weren't putting too right. much investment in those huge companies where, you know, on any given, Monday morning, they wake up and they have a change of heart. Um, we had a similar situation with a, with a, with a few companies. And, and, you know, I think what, what Phil Knight shows is keep, keep going. I mean, I, I'm not sure how much you know about Nike, but, you know, he was basically a distributor of, of a shoe company from Japan and then realized he could do it better. And, you know, he went through the trials and tribulations of dealing with a, a partner in a foreign country and, and doing your own thing. But, I mean, he basically paid Michael Jordan, I think it was $250,000 a year for his Air Jordan. And that franchise is worth upper almost $4 billion annually. So, yeah, that has know, to go down as one of the best oh. signings ever. I mean, astonishing. I think uh, they said if Michael Jordan got paid what he was worth, he would own a quarter of the NBA. Yeah. I mean, so that monopoly started the monopoly, the monopoly of Nike in the NBA and college, uh, for that matter, happened with Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan was close. Few people realize this, and I probably wouldn't have realized it either if I didn't read the book. Um, he was close to signing with Adidas. And a couple of weeks before he eventually signed with Nike, they had a breakdown. And so it's just, you know, these, these iconic brands, and you're thinking like for 250 grand, you know, Michael Jordan may have gone with Adidas and it just seems so, you know, air what? I mean, like, you know, in terms of how does that work with Adidas? And yet, you know, that's, that's Adidas is fine. They're, they're doing okay. And, and it's just a question of, of utilizing your skill sets. And that's, I mean, Phil Knight was, was an athlete, you know, um, he partnered with the right, he partnered with the coach from, um, Oregon, um, it was Bowerman, I think, Coach Bowerman, who was a major player in the NCAA level, track and field. Yeah, I remember so, that. I saw the movie Prefontaine oh, yeah. with Jared yeah. Leto. And then there was a similar one with Billy Crudup that dropped almost at the same time. Kind of like the movie, um, not The Magician, the one, um, oh gosh. Uh, the Illusionist? Yes. And then the yes. one with Edward and Norton. Right? It's amazing to me how Hollywood, like they sit on you know, Prefontaine. And then within, I think you're right. Within a year, there were those two movies and it's like, really? And it's great. I mean, his story is unbelievable story, but, but Phil Knight was involved with his shoes, with his running shoes. And, and, you know, just the, it's a good book. I would, I would actually recommend um, reading it and, you know, just with the caveat that he, he wins out in the end, you know, spoiler alert. Phil Knight. Yeah, well, Phil Knight does okay. <laughs> yeah, so something tells me they're not writing a book about you unless you say Adam Newman from WeWork. Uh, right. you, you're either a huge success or a huge controversy. Yep. Or even Elizabeth Holmes, I don't know if you ever read Bad Blood by yep. John Carreyhew. I, I could not put that book down. It was great. Yeah. Good and, stuff, and Noah. I really enjoyed it. Phil, I enjoyed it as well. 
Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.